You're listening to the LMCC Podcast, a ministry of La Mirada Christian Church in La Mirada, California. Here's Pastor Jennifer Richmond with this week's message. Um, it's been a week. It's been a week. Our week began uh, with a letter from the IRS. Woohoo! And um, Wednesday, I threw out my back. I've been in back spasms, pretty much flat on my back, staring at the popcorn, making little animals out of the ceiling shapes up there on Wednesday through Friday. And um, then on uh, Saturday, we said goodbye to our, our, our beloved dog, Lucy. And uh, so it's been, a, it's been a, a long week. It's been a rough week, emotional week. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, um, I'm really glad to be here with you all this morning. <laughs> this is a good place to be uh, among friends and people that we love. And, and uh, it's just good to be here. So question for you. Who is the least creative, least remarkable, least inventive person you can think of? (laughs) You're like thinking of Pinterest fails you've seen. Clayton is volunteering for the position. All right, I'll save you some time and some energy here. Satan. Satan is. Solomon wrote, there is nothing new under the sun. In response to his ponderings about the repetitive and seeming meaninglessness of life, because aside from God's creative power and inspiration, it's always going to be business as usual, and any of our efforts will eventually cycle into routine and meaningless pursuits outside of the newness and the redemption that God brings. God, on the other hand, infinitely creative, original, awesome, so much so that not only does God create the fascinating diversity of nature like this, and you see our, uh, our little dog Lucy there on the screen, and a cute little ladybug, newborn baby, the universe, and happy dolphins jumping for joy. God made all that, the biggest things to the smallest. He's intimately involved in our lives, allowing for our personalities, blessing us with intelligence and creativity and giving us a never-ending supply of, of love, attentive to our needs in the most effective way possible. His ways are not our ways. They're higher and they're more profound. His mercies, they're new every morning. They don't wear out. They don't repeat in a boring way, he supplies out of the abundance of his riches, which never end. It's above all that we can ask or imagine. God is making a way, providing, supplying, preparing, creating. Are you with me? All right. So to the extent that God Almighty, the creator of the universe, is ingenious in new ways to love us and to draw us together, Satan is a cliché. Satan is unoriginal in his tactics, and yet over and over again, we fall for them. You know, like that fun uncle? The fun uncle. You know the one. The one that says, hey, what's that on your shirt? And then boops you on the chin. Maybe you had an uncle like that. Maybe you are that uncle. Um, Hey, is that a giraffe? And then when you're looking, steals your fries. Who looks for giraffes? I don't know. I always fall for it. Shirt's on fire. Now it's out. You know. You know the guy. Only Satan 
isn't fun and his schemes aren't just a silly distraction. From our passage today, I want us to get some perspective on this and what we can learn in the example from Nehemiah. If we can be aware of Satan's schemes, we're less likely to fall. If we're mindful that we have an enemy who is like a roaring lion and he's set against us so hard that we need to be armed as if we're going into battle, then we can see defeat and we can see distraction and difficulty for what it oftentimes is, a tired old scheme of Satan. And we've been making our way through this account in Nehemiah and our series, United. And if we've seen anything, we've seen that life is a battle from beginning to end. Nehemiah faced challenges the moment he set his heart to obey God's command. He set his heart to obey God's command and to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And he faced difficulty before he even got to the city. Then after he reached Jerusalem, enemies rose up to oppose everything that he did, which might feel surprising. I mean, think about it. Wasn't Nehemiah on a very clear mission, inspired and blessed by God? And yet Nehemiah and the entire project, a noble project, a God-honoring project, that entire project has been tripped up repeatedly. And like Nehemiah, we're confronted by the enemy of law and order and justice and peace. God's plan is for peace and for love and for unity. And here in Nehemiah, as in many other places in the scripture, we learn that the devil has two main ways of working. And I think you'll relate to this because you'll run into them and you already have in your experience. They're hard to miss. Rooted, number one, in fear. And it's effective. Then he comes on as an angel of light. He comes with smiles and enticing ideas and promising and, and flattering words, assuring us that his way is easy and his way is free. So either way, fear or flattery, will result in destruction. Ruin begins. We have to be aware. We have to be on our guard against these approaches. So here we are in chapter 5. Open up your Bibles to chapter 5 of Nehemiah. And Satan is at it again. Same song, different tune. Nehemiah is nothing if persistent. First he had to face the king of Persia and persuade him to let him go to this country, his home country. Next, he had to take a 900-mile, three-month trip from Susa in Persia to Jerusalem in Israel and see exactly what was going on. Then he had to rally cooperation of the Jews of Judah, the rich ones and the poor ones, to get behind his mission to rebuild the walls, something tried and something failed by leaders before him. Then Three interfering local officials get involved and they decide they didn't want Jerusalem built unless they were part of the process and they were also given a share of the leadership and the rule over the city. When they didn't get their way, they began to threaten the Jews with violence. And now the project is moving forward. Nehemiah has the workers on the wall, literally, with shovels in one hand and spears in the other, prepared for anything outsiders could throw at them. They're armed and they're amped and they're ready to go when chapter 5 verse 1 now there arose a great outcry from the people and of their wives against their jewish brothers so no longer attack from without <laughs> now it's trouble from within and this time it's a clash it's a clash between the workers and the officials the laborers and the overseers who are working on the project this then is a class struggle 
it's, a, it's typical of all class struggles, really. There's many complaints about the officials, and there are three specific ones. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and stay and keep alive. While they were working on the walls day and night, they had no time to plant crops, and yet they had to eat. They're really struggling as families to just put, put food on the table, and verse 3 reveals what made it so difficult. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. There's a famine going on now, too. So a famine on top of everything that they're dealing with. They, they had to mortgage their property, but the worst part next is coming up. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money from the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. You catch what they're saying? Our flesh is the same as the flesh of our brothers. They're saying, hey, we're just the same as all of you. We have children too, just like you do, but we're suffering at your hands and it's just not right. We're powerless here. In those times, if, if you couldn't pay for your taxes, you could sell your, your children or your wife off into slavery for a time in order just to pay what you owed. This has already happened to some, and this is a big problem. These were justified complaints. Nehemiah, you gotta love him how he approaches this. He's a man on a mission. Keep that in mind. A man on a mission. And he, he just tackles this in his classic style, head on, and he gets to the root of the problem and, and see what happens. First, he hears from the people. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And here's what I see. I, I see him up close and I see him getting involved. He's very personal. He's approachable. He's available. That's a great leader. He takes on their case and their cause with personal response. He's angry. There's no other way to say it. He's really mad, mad at how they're being treated and angry also because, like I said, Nehemiah is a man on a mission and he's focused on God's work and this is infuriating. I mean, it's one thing to deal with the opposition from your natural enemies. Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, they had it in for him in this project, but this is coming from within their own people. Not cool. You know what this also tells me about Nehemiah? First of all, he loves God. Not just, yeah, I love God, I go to the synagogue, I give my tithe, that kind of lip service. He loves God with a fierceness and a strength that comes out and how protective he is of God's cause. And secondly, Nehemiah loves the people, his people, his brothers, his sisters of Israel. He loves God and he loves the people. His anger is indignation. It's righteous anger. It's not, it's not selfish and petty. It's not, I'm not getting my way, and he's foot-stomping and temper tantruming around. He's, he's legitimately fuming with fury. The Hebrew word here is, he's pissed off. That's the Hebrew word, loosely translated. But, but really, the word is wayahar, wayahar. It's a word that has the idea of burning up with anger. Moms might call this the mama bear response. Moms, you've been there, right? Do not mess with my kids right? And if my kids are doing God's work, do not mess. Watch out, right? So verse 7 continues, and listen to what Nehemiah does. I took counsel with myself. <laughs> he takes a breather, and he thinks this whole thing through. Nehemiah, he's a planner. He's a thinker, and he's angry, and he, and he counts like to a hundred, like we all should. We all should count and think and pray and breathe and be angry, but do not sin. And Nehemiah pauses before responding 
and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest from each his brother? We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? And they were silent and could not find a word to say. He shuts them down. So they had been charging interest for money which had been loaned to their own people, which was completely forbidden by law. Leviticus 25, if you want to look that up, it's a fascinating chapter on tax law in ancient Israel. Actually, it really is fascinating what God provided for the Israelites. Listen to what he says here in in, uh, verse 17. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And then later down in verse 35, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though you were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. Take your brother, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money at interest, nor give him food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan, which is where they are right now, and to be your God. We have to remember, think about it. What's happening here in Jerusalem isn't some pet project of Nehemiah, some idea he got in his head, oh, I'm going to rebuild that wall. It's not some commercial project he's planning on making money off of. It's a cause for the advancement of the kingdom of God. It's God's will that Jerusalem be redeveloped. And if the common Jews are are willing to stop farming, to leave home and leave their families for a time, to work with one hand on a tool and another on a sword for self-defense and to give their backbreaking labor to make it happen, then the rich Jews not only shouldn't be profiting from it, they should help to make up for what the laborers were sacrificing. Verse 9 in chapter 5 says back in Nehemiah, So I said, the thing you're doing is not good. It's like kind of one of those duh moments. Well, duh, it's not good. Ought you not walk and note this, underline it, highlight it, put a scratch and stiff, stiff sticker in your Bible by it. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? I really, really, really want us to see the rationale that Nehemiah has here. He's saying, shouldn't be doing this. You should fear God. What is Nehemiah's core motivator? Fear of God. Another way of saying that is total respect. Not like, boo, I gotcha, God's going to smite me. Not that kind of fear. I mean, he could smite us, that's true. But it's not like that. It's total respect, complete submission to the absolute reverent attitude of God. Total, ultimate love response to God. Isn't that exactly what we learned about Nehemiah all the way back in chapter 1? If you want to hop over there in your Bible, take a look at what he says in his prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. Listen to this prayer right at the very beginning. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to do what? Fear your name. This isn't some new concept Nehemiah has come up with. This is the core value of his life. This is how he responds and why he responds to everything. And not just fear your name. What does it say? But delight to fear your name. Have you ever thought about that? Putting delight and fear your name together? Like, yay, I'm so happy. I'm delighting to fear in God's name. That's Nehemiah. This isn't some obligatory, I'm a Hebrew, so I better fear God attitude. Nehemiah delights to fear God. You know what happens when we do that? You know what happens? David tells us. 
Five, six hundred years before this, before Nehemiah wrote these words, David said in Psalm 37, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. That defines Nehemiah and friends. That should define us as well. That we not only fear God, but we delight to fear him. Nehemiah has built his entire venture this entire plan to rebuild the wall on the prayers of people, including himself, who promised to fear God. And now, having dealt with opposition from the outside enemies, he's facing oppression, and it's coming from within. And Nehemiah's first big main call out of these people isn't just that what they're doing is wrong, and it is wrong, it's that they're, they're not walking in the fear of God. And that's the big deal. Nehemiah has a bit of a, are you kidding me moment here? I mean, think about it. After all, they've survived 900 miles, three-month walk. They're halfway through this amazing building project, shutting down the schemes of the enemy, rocking the project with shovels in one hand and spears in the other. They're a band of brothers, if ever there was one. And then this oppressive treatment, brother taking advantage against brother, the rich lording it over the poor comes in. And that's what's going to stop this wall? After all of this? I have a question for you. I want you to think about it. What makes this church any different from a charity organization down the street that helps the homeless, or a nonprofit organization feeding refugees, or a group that provides clothing and shoes for orphans? Think about it. Any good, decent human being should help the homeless. Be kind, be good. Notice when others are hurting. Notice when people are having a hard time getting by. What makes this place different? What makes La Mirada Church not just another charity? We love God. <laughs> and I'm not saying that charitable organizations don't. Actually, the vast majority of them are founded by Christians. What I'm saying is that Nehemiah didn't just tell them to stop oppressing the people. He told them to fear God. That's the deepest, the highest, the most all-encompassing kind of love that you can have for God and his people. And that was the basis of his admonition when he called out the leaders. From here, Nehemiah not only warns them to stop oppressing the people with high interest rates and indentured service of their children, he tells them to give everything back, everything that they took, give it all back. And it was a lot. And guess what? They did. That's exactly what happened. Look at verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these, and we require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they promised. Do you know something? You're right, Nehemiah. We get it, right? And they agree to make it right. And to really seal the deal, he gets the priests involved, and he makes them swear it'll stop. Then Nehemiah adds some really interesting, dramatic flair to the encounter. Check it out in your Bible. Verse 13, he describes what he does. Like he, he lays it out, like describes it all out. So I shook out the fold of my garment. Gentlemen, have you ever had to wear a cummerbund before? Cummerbund? All right. That's the, actually how this got started. Cummerbund originated way back here with uh, Nehemiah, probably his grandma, great-grandma made him. I don't know. Maybe she was in business. Who knows? I'll just add to the Bible today. Listen to what he says. So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. What? What, what is he saying? All right. So Nehemiah uses this visual aid as a warning to them if they broke their vow before God. Before the invention of pockets, 
A fold in a garment would be used to provide a safe place to put things. It would just like lip it up and fold it. So this would have been really dramatic because he would have like taken it and just yanked it out like this and maybe even flailed it around, you know, Indiana Jones style. Dusted off. He was mad. He was making his big strong point. He was tearing his clothes off basically. And he, and he whipped it out really dramatically. So Nehemiah opens up this fold in his garment, shakes it, asks God to do the same thing for anyone who fails up to live to their vow. The idea was that God would toss out those people who tossed out the poorest among them just like that. Or the offenders would lose everything that was valuable to them. Verse 14. All the assembly. That word there means the rich and the poor together. That means everybody was together. It wasn't like Nehemiah was meeting with just the rich guys and the priests. He pulled everybody into the same room. So all the assembly said, everyone, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The spirit of what Nehemiah suggested and what the wealthy agreed to after being so callous and so wrong for so long is really actually nicely summed up. If you'll hop over to the New Testament, 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods, think about these rulers back then. If anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love the world the love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Nehemiah goes on to describe his personal integrity and how he actually persevered. He didn't take advantage of the people like the governors before them. He took in 150 guests on his own dime, feeding them at his own expense, even though he had a food allowance from uh, being their governor. He, he knew the people were stretched thin with their work and financial trouble. So instead of continuing to take what he could have, he goes above and beyond. And why? Nehemiah 5, 15. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the, what does it say? Fear of God. And then hop to verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. For Nehemiah, God was real. He was more than just a philosophical principle, more than just something to argue about. Does God exist or not? God was real to him. God filled his vision. He filled his life. He understood that there was coming a day that he would have to give an account before God. I think that's why he was so generous. But there's also a second motivation. Not only did he fear God, but he cared very deeply for his own people because the service was too heavy on the people. He didn't demand tax as the other governors had done because the people couldn't bear it, because they were groaning, because they were in distress, because they were hurting. His heart responded to the hurt of the people of God. He loved the people. He was their governor and he loved them. He had political authority over them but he loved them. He had a true shepherd's heart. That's the kind of heart we want to have as well. A heart that's fiercely loyal and loving toward God and a heart that also sees and responds sacrificially to others. The one single most powerful motivation in Nehemiah's life was the fear of God. You know, if we live like that, if we really live like that, if we lived like the single most powerful motivation in our life was actually the fear of God, it would transform us. It would transform our homes, our relationships, our attitude at work. It would transform our church. Oh my God, and all that he is so fill our vision that we can see nothing else that we might live out and out just for him.
So the people are free to work without burden. The leaders are free from greed and redirected to the purpose of God, and word gets out. Old enemies are back. Sanballat, Geshem, try to stop Nehemiah again, chapter 6, verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together and hawk for him in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Sambalad and Geshem, you sneaky devils. And he sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. These guys are back, and they're switching up their tactics. Threats and attacks haven't worked, so they're going to sweeten the deal a little bit, try the soft approach. Meet them up, the plain of Ono. That plain actually today is located near where the airport is in Israel. It's down on the seacoast near the Gaza Strip. But Nehemiah... He's on to him, and he senses the danger. They were scheming to harm me, he realizes. And he sees through that scheme, and he refuses to go along, even though they pressure him four different times. I am doing a great work, he says. God has committed to me a tremendous project, and if I leave, it'll be threatened. And then on the fifth time, listen to what Sanballat does, verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent a servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says... <laughs> This is just a funny account. I just love this part. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You just feel the sass in his voice. All right. Maybe I put it in there, but anyway. Verse 7. And you also have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So come and let us take counsel together, he says. An official letter was rolled up. And, uh, and had an official seal on it. But this letter was an open letter, which meant that Sambalot specifically sent it open so that anybody in whose hands that letter is passed can read it. And so gossip can spread, and word can get out, and people can all get stirred up behind the scenes. Oh, that Nehemiah, mmm, and start talking about him behind his back, right? Sambalot accuses him of stirring up this rebellion and plotting of becoming king and offers Nehemiah, let's meet, let's talk about this. But again, Nehemiah refuses and he calls them out for what? Fake news. It's fake news. This isn't real. This isn't happening. Listen to what Nehemiah says. Verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Hashtag fake news. It would be all over Twitter if they had it back in the day. So firm in his fear of God, Nehemiah recognizes for what it is. Exactly. Listen, verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. And immediately, what does Nehemiah do? He turns to God and prays for the very thing that his enemies want, his hands to drop, to get weak in their work. So what is Nehemiah's prayer? But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. I don't want my hands to drop. Strengthen my hands. Let's be clear. Think. God is not going to give you a spirit of fear. Ever, period, end of sentence, full stop. The Spirit of God, the Spirit that he gives us, is of power and of love and of sound judgment. Second Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of one of power and love and sound judgment. So in your life, facing whatever Sanballat is tearing at you, if your hands are weak in doing the work of God, lacking love, or if you have confusion and you have fuzzy thinking, be certain that's not from God. Mark down 2 Timothy 1.7. Use it as a checklist the next time you're not certain. Not filled with power, love, sound thinking. 
It's not from God. Okay, so the threats and attempts by Sambalot are a little transparent. I mean, really. Nehemiah is seasoned in his leadership now. He's been there, done that. And after praying for God to strengthen his hands, he faces yet another challenge, this time from someone claiming to speak for God himself, a prophet named Shemaiah. This man's a false prophet. He claims to have hidden maybe occultic knowledge, and Sambalot hires him to prophesy. And what he says might make sense. It does. Think about it when it comes up. It's going to sound a little bit logical, and there's a little bit of truth to it. Some people are out to get you. They're going to kill you, he charges. Nehemiah certainly believes that. So this prophet tells him that he should come on up here, and, and we'll go into the temple, and we'll shut the doors, we'll lock ourselves into the temple, and they'll, they'll not dare attack you inside there. And that sounds pretty good. I mean, he is under attack. But immediately, Nehemiah's, you know, lyometer goes off, and he detects something is wrong. He knows that he's not only permitted, not permitted to go into that temple, only priests could go into that temple. He wasn't a priest. And so he answers back. He says in verse 11, chapter 6, but I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? And without saying it, he's saying, I fear God. I'm not going to the temple. That's against God's law. I'm not a priest. I'm not going to hide and lock myself into the temple. Only priests are allowed to do that. I fear God. I will not go in. He realizes that a prophet who was really from the Lord would only prophesy in line with God's law. There was an altar of asylum outside the temple in the courtyard to which people were under threat. They could go flee there for safety, right? But this man is proposing that they actually go into the temple and shut the doors. So Nehemiah says, verse 12, And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. Dun, dun, dun. The plot thickens continually. All right? Verse 13. For this purpose he was hired. And listen to the fear words here. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way. And then what happens? And sin. Fear. I act out of fear and I do what? Sin. Underline it. Double underline it. Triple underline it. It's the story of all of our lives. We act out of fear. We sin. It happens to all of us. He says, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God, according to the things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me what? Afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. Who wants that kind of clear thinking? I do. <laughs> Sign me up twice. Who wants to, to see options in life presented and be able to decisively know God's desire? We all should have our hands up at this point. We all should. We all should exactly want that. Who hasn't felt challenged in trying to, des- to decide which way to go? What's Nehemiah's secret? He knows God. And he knows God's word. So when faced with a pretty good idea, I mean, it wasn't like it was a prophet tempting him to uh, go uh, get his fortune told by a witch. It wasn't like he was being told to go build an altar out of gold and pray to that altar and dance around it. He was suggesting that Nehemiah go into God's temple, and that should be good. God's temple, right? No, no, not in the way this prophet is leading. And, and that's really important. We have to see this. Satan will often tempt us a little bit of what seems good and then, and then twist it somewhere with something wrong. When you have a healthy love and a fear of God, you will have greater discernment. Look what happens next, Nehemiah 6.15. So the wall was finished. And on the 25th day of the month of the law, in 52 days, 
And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Listen, listen. God calls us to be alert and sober-minded, watching out for the schemes of the devil. He prowls around like a, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Is that you? Is that me? Yeah, we've all got targets on our back. The devil wants to devour our lives, keeping us from the blessing of delighting him. First of all, Satan wants you fearful. Fear. Fear is not the absence of faith. It's the misplacement of it. The devil doesn't want us to rob us of our faith. He wants our faith to be in anything but God. Life in Christ is not in fear. Nehemiah didn't live in fear of man. Instead, he lived in the fear of God. Three times in this book, Nehemiah mentions the fear of God, and twice right here in chapter 5. His fear was a healthy awe and a reverence for the Almighty God. Every opposition that came up against Nehemiah, he faced in the fear and the conviction of who God was. Four times, Nehemiah writes that his enemies tried to make him afraid, and all of those times are in chapter 6 that we just went through. But Nehemiah feared God. You know, my grandmother, what she would have said? She would have said, that Nehemiah kept his nose clean. (laughs) In other words, he lived right by God, right? He did it right. He could have taken advantage of the people. He could have lived at this advantage. Instead, he did exactly what the author of Hebrews warned us in Hebrews chapter 13. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen? His focus off of his oppressors, it released his mind and his heart to let God take care of him. And God did. Secondly, Satan wants you phased. Phased, distracted, off mission. When, when the people were being oppressed with that serious social justice situation that was going on and challenging Nehemiah, he wasn't phased. He wasn't distracted and put off mission. He could have paused everything to really focus on that, rally around the poor and the oppressed and champion their cause, fight for their rights, all good, all compassionate agendas, but not on mission. His mission was God's mission first. When he became aware of their unfair treatment, he made it right by pointing the people to the number one thing they needed to do, fear God. (laughs) The rationale, the motivation, the mission of Nehemiah's life and his actions were all rooted in a love and passion for God because he revered God. That steadfast determination kept him on mission. Does God want us to tend to the needs of the oppressed? Yes, of course. But our mission is to love God, heart, soul, mind, strength. And from that will flow the response that he wants. And what is that response? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God, and to live our faith as a true religion that looks after orphans and widows in their distress. Third, Satan wants us to fall away or to be led astray. Matthew 7 puts it like this. Watch out. For false prophets, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. When we rely on the words of men or ourselves in place of God's word, we can lead others away from Jesus, and we can be led from his truth ourselves. Nehemiah's fear of God was the beginning of his wisdom. This gave him incredible discernment, and he was able to easily see through the schemes that were aimed at him, and the false prophets paid to lead him into sin. And finally, Satan wants you to fail. That might seem self-evident, but let's just focus on that for a minute. He wants us to fail, to lose strength, to lose heart, and ultimately to have our faith and our reputation destroyed. 
Nehemiah knew they wanted to frighten him and all those who feared God. He could have dropped his hands and become weary after all the attacks and the schemes from the outside and the discouragement and the exhaustion from within. But he prayed. He prayed for God to strengthen his hands. Satan wants us to settle for what the world has given us and just accept it as our lot. Second Corinthians says it like this, chapter 4. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. When you feel like you are going to lose, take heart. Jesus has already won. Jesus won out over fear when his body was broken and his blood was shed on the cross for our sins. And this morning, we're going to take some time to come before God in prayer and in worship and communion with the bread reminding us of his broken body and the cup reminding us of his blood. And during the next songs that we'll sing, as you feel led, you can make your way to the tables in the back where you can take communion. If you need assistance by having communion brought to you, please let us know. Just raise your hand, and, and then you can just take communion at your own pace. And maybe this morning you need some prayer. Maybe prayer for the fear that you're facing in your life, for the brokenness in your relationships, or to surrender your life to God once and for all. Well, there'll be some people, some wonderful people up here in the front, be ready to pray and, and, and listen to you. So come on up if that's what you want to uh, do this morning. You can also come and let us know if you'd like to join this church and be a part of our community here at La Mirada Church. When you head back to communion, um, take your Connect card, your prayer card, your giving card, and uh, drop it in those kiosks in the back. And remember, if you're new with us today, uh, take it out to the patio. We want to say hi, and we have a, we have a gift for you out there. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we love you so much. We love your word and how it washes over us and, and, and centers us back on what is true. We get distracted and we, and we lose our focus. And God, we just come before you now. We ask that you would continue to help us see you, love you, fear you, share you, and live our, our lives oriented around you and your love and grace and ours. Come before us now together, Lord, in this room as we worship and sing and, and just honor and praise you. We're humble in our hearts for all that you've done for us, Lord. And so as we just worship and sing and, and pray, we ask that you be present in this time and we could feel your spirit in this place and know and trust that you are working in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to check us out on social media at La Mirada Church and online at lamaradachurch.com. 